Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, we're picking up on a series that was started several years ago and that will not be completed for several more years. (laughs) 150 chapters in the book of Psalms. We're going to take a few more for the next few weeks. And I'm doing this for two reasons. One, the last third of Genesis that we needed to get back to and cover is a really fast-moving narrative, and I do not want it broken up with Thanksgiving and Christmas, and so I'd rather just start that in January. The second reason why we will be in Psalms for the next few weeks is because, frankly, I need it. We need it. It's a tough time. It's a tough time in hearts, and we need to experience just some healing from God's Word, and no place is better than the Psalms itself, as it targets our hearts and points us to God. So Psalm chapter 8 is page 450, if you're following along in the Blue Bibles. Let me read the text for us. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic! is your name in all the earth. The little book I'm about to reference would mark the ethos of an era. The title is The Lovables in the Kingdom of Self-Esteem. It was written by Diane Lumens, illustrated by Kim Howard, and became a staple in the American education system through the early 90s into the early 2000s. The way it works is this, you would open up the page, uh, I mean the first page of the book, and you, or the tiny child reading, or the parent reading to the child, would have the following read to you. The inside copy, first lines are as follows, they're stunning. I am lovable, I am lovable, I am lovable. Isn't that a great start? You feel special already. By using these magical words, the gates to the kingdom of self-esteem swing open for readers of all ages. Uh, The book goes on to talk about how everything and every person has a special gift to contribute. So, Owen Owl is capable. Buddy Beaver takes care of the world around him. Greta Goat trusts herself. And so it continues. Now, it seems a little cheesy by this point. For us to actually say that a book like this could have a profound impact upon a generation. And yet again, it was the ethos of an era. For any of us who were educated anywhere from the mid-80s 
to even the early 2000s, the self-esteem movement was king. We all remember how important it was that we believed in ourselves and that we trusted in ourselves and that we followed our own heart and that we realized that we were special, right? Exercises were invented to, to help us remember how special we really are. Some classrooms would organize themselves for magic circle time in which children would say to one another one thing that they thought was great about themselves. Or, in some public school classrooms, etched into the mirror was the following line, I am one of the most special people in the entire world. Then from this came the adult version, the self-help movement. In fact, if you were to go into a Barnes & Nobles today, you would see that one of the biggest sections in the nonfiction floor is that of self-help. It took off during this period because people were trying to figure out, well, how do we change the world? Well, maybe the problem is we just think too poorly of ourselves. But there were problems with this. It would backfire in a couple of ways. Once the research was actually out to see the positive benefit of the self-help movement, they realized that it didn't really change anything. In fact, as studies were done on prison inmates, for example, to figure out their self-esteem levels, they realized that prisoners have a pretty high view of themselves. <laughs> it's not that they think poorly of themselves. The problem was that they thought too highly of themselves. And... I can say this in self-mockery because I just do fit into the gap of the millennial. So 84 is the threshold. That's when I was born. If you feel like you need to walk out now, that's fine. <laughs> so some self-mockery here of the millennial generation. They're not known for their work ethic. But they've got awesome self-esteem. It didn't work. So how should we think of ourselves? One of the Christian responses down through the century is to find every Bible verse that talks about how bad we are and then to latch on to that and say, you know what, we should just think poorly of ourselves. Uh, a, a famous example of this is coming from the book of Job where Isaac Watts in his famous hymn describes himself as a worm, for such a worm as I. I have even in my library a copy of Puritan Prayers, and there is one titled, Man a Nothing. Man a Nothing. And you read through those couple pages, and you're like, wow, man is worthless. <laughs> but is that really what the Scriptures call us to think? Is, should we view ourselves as worthless, as a nothing, as a worm? Sometimes we think too highly of ourselves. Sometimes we think too lowly of ourselves. Sometimes we're just straight up wrong. <laughs> and finding our, our worth and our value, again, when we don't know where it comes from, we start latching other things, latching on to other things, and we find value in how much money we make, what our body looks like, what we've been able to achieve. And so when the bank account's up, our spirits are up. And when the body looks okay or we feel somewhat successful on the diet, we feel good. 
And when we're checking off things on our to-do list, it's going great. But the only problem is it cuts the other way. Because when the to-do list doesn't get done, and when the bank account is low, and then when you get that diagnosis that your body's not going to ultimately be better, we're toast. So how would the Almighty God of the universe have us today, as His creatures, think of ourselves if He would even have us think of ourselves at all? Well, the text is clear. We should be thinking of ourselves in a particular way, and you'd be surprised to know that this particular passage in Psalm 8 uncovers the key to appropriate self-esteem, appropriate self-estimation. But I say it's surprising because you'll find that it doesn't begin inwardly, it begins upwardly. To understand oneself, we don't need a more solid anthropology, we actually need a better understanding of theology. Because that's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. We've already read the text, but did you notice the Hebrew literary device popular in poems, especially called inclusio or inclusion or bracketing? In which the first line of the psalm and the last line of the psalm are exactly the same, showing you exactly what this thing is about. More than anything, even though the middle of this is going to be about how we view ourselves, right on the outside, on the entry point and on the way out, you need to understand something. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Look in your Bibles there in verse 1 or all the way down in verse 9, and you'll see that the first Lord there is in all caps. Anytime you see that, it's talking about the special name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. This is God's relational name that He's given to His people. When you see this, it is an indication that here's a God who's made promises to His people. They have a special relationship with Him. I'll put it this way. They're on a first-name basis with God. This is God's name. And then you see the other Lord, and you'll notice that it's a little different, right? You see the typeset in your Bible, if you're using an ESV or... Uh, N-A-S-B, capital L, small O-R-D, that's a different Hebrew word. Adonai, it means Lord, Master, Owner, Ruler, Boss. So what we have first is his name and then his title. Think Frederick the Great, William the Conqueror. This whole view of self begins with an appropriate view of God. And we see him as the almighty relational creator, one who's entered into relationship with us. But listen to this, one who still rules over us. Our boss, our master, our owner, our Lord. Now, it's not very American to talk about this, but get it, friends. For those who have been created by God, they are owned by him. If you really want to understand yourself appropriately, you will understand yourself as one in relationship with God and who is ruled by Him. He made you. He owns you. He is your master. He is your boss. And guess what? David thinks this is a great thing. This is not a lament. This is a psalm of celebration. This is something that people would gather together and sing in the temple. They were celebrating that Yahweh was their Lord. Yahweh was their master and owner and ruler and boss. And then he adds, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the thing that he wants them to get first and foremost. That God, the God that we serve, our ruler, our owner, our boss, he is majestic. Now we've sang about that this morning already. But could you give me a working definition of majestic? 
I mean, we don't do it very, we don't talk about it very often. It, basically, the, the Hebrew word for it, majestic here, means excess excellence. Excess excellence. So when you're talking about a king, you use the word majesty. If you were talking about somebody that was honored, you would talk about how noble is your name in all the earth. I say excessive excellence because like, it's really kind of hard to have excessive excellence. I mean, really, can food be too good? Can you be too healthy? Can parents be too patient? Yes, they can. (laughs) But the point is, this is something excessive. So what is it? God's rule, His dominance, His sovereignty, it is excessively excellent. And then He's going to add, in all the earth. Not just in some parts and in some ways, here and there, but in the entire earth, no matter where you look, you're, he is celebrating that God's rule is good. And then he even adds another line in verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. He wants them, in understanding themselves, to understand first and foremost that they're serving one whose glory, whose reputation, whose weightiness and significance What's the best way I can say this? Exceeds all boundaries. When he says that your glory exceeds the heavens, you need to understand that in the Jewish frame of thinking, there were three heavens. The first heavens was the sky as we know it, the atmosphere, what we see outside, the blue stuff out there. The second heavens was that of outer space, what we consider to be outer space, the the stars, the moon, And then the third heavens was the abode of God Himself. It was the highest possible plane of existence. And what He says here is that God's glory, His significance, rises above. It is, again, it's not as poetic, but it's, you'll understand it as an American, it's off the charts. It exceeds all limitation. But specifically speaking, how? How is God so majestic? How is His glory so high? These these are all nice, glistening generalities. But specifically, what does David have in mind here? Now he's going to turn attention to mankind, to humanity. Can I give a cultural timeout for a second? I'm going to use the word man today, not to be chauvinistic, but just as shorthand for mankind. So that means males and females together. I want you to understand that. We're talking about the human race is what is being discussed in this particular text. So when you see man, don't limit it. Think broadly. So a couple of ways then in which God's majesty is manifest in mankind. That's what the text is about. If you're a note taker, that's the kind of thing you want to write down. A couple of ways the majesty of God is manifest in mankind couple of ways the majesty of God is manifest in mankind. The first is that the majesty of God is manifest in our inability. The majesty of God is manifest. It is made known in our inability. Look at verse 2. He immediately transitions. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, there's an odd verse. It is something that is extremely hard to understand. Anytime you see the word babies, 
and enemies and avenger in the same verse, it kind of makes you wonder how they fit together. And you don't get much help from a cursory glance at the text because you're thinking, okay, the babies babble in some way, the babies speak, the babies communicate, God's strength is established somehow against his enemies, avengers, and opponents. What in the world is he talking about here? This is simply a poetic way to show that God shows strength or honor to verbalized expressions of weakness or need. The text is about God showing strength or honor to verbalized expressions of weakness or need. The God that you serve and I serve has a divine affinity for human weakness. See, we're tempted to think that God gravitates toward human strength, toward the smart, the the intelligent, the beautiful, the bold. And yet what, what the text is reminding us is that actually God shows off His strength. He establishes His strength when the weakest do the most worthless. I mean, what we have here is somebody who is immeasurable, and immaterial. I mean, you have immeasurable, this small little baby, small child, one literally still at the breast, just babbling, speaking out. Now, it's not even doing anything. It's just crying out for help. And through that, God somehow establishes or showcases His strength. It's the way that God works Calvin recognized this. He said, babes and sucklings are the invincible champions of God who, when it comes to conflict, can easily scatter and discomfit the whole host of wicked despisers of God. He said, Justin, I don't get it still. How in the world does this happen? Can I give you a parenting analogy, maybe? Have you ever used the phrase mama bear? you ever described your wife as such? Or has your wife ever been in one of those mama bear kind of moments in which the cry of a child will mobilize her to a new height of action and protection for it? Surely, somebody's done that. You may have embarrassed yourself, but you protected your child when you heard it screaming. We get the idea of the, the mama bear phrase from that of grizzly bears. Not black bears, interestingly, <laughs> Another conversation for another day, but grizzly bears. Because grizzly bears in particular are fiercely protective of their young. According to bears.org, not even Wikipedia, I went to bears.org. (laughs) 70% of bear-on-human attacks are mama bears protecting their cubs. There's a natural tendency, a maternal, a a paternal tendency for us to move, to mobilize ourselves when we hear children cry out. They're, They're weak. We know they can't do it on their own. They require our attention. They require our help. And so God, in similar ways, is moved to action in the cries of His weak and helpless people. When they're in those moments and they recognize how small they are and they know that they have nothing to contribute or offer, when their only recourse is actually to cry out, God shows Himself strong. He establishes strength against enemies, avengers, foes. Anyone acting against His purposes will find out how strong He is when His children admit that they are weak and in need. 
it's hard for us to do. I was with Rob Clark at the um, China Vision Appreciation Banquet. And the, the senior pastor there, Rob's former senior pastor, kept saying this phrase, and I thought, man, he's kind of wearing this thing out. And then I, now that I've reflected on it a little more, I, I think I want to wear it out. He kept saying, we're all a bunch of losers. <laughs> now, I, you're not going to find that in a self-esteem book. But the tr- I mean, let's, let's be honest, friends. Do we really have it all together? I mean, when it comes to the attacks of the enemies of God on His purposes in our life and in those around us, I mean, how many of you are just killing it right now? Like you're a 10 out of 10? Anybody? We're a bunch of losers. We are about as helpful and strong as a baby crying out against the discomfort of a wet diaper. We're mere toddlers yelling for help against the attack of an adult man. The problems that we face in the world at large and in our own personal lives are so much stinking bigger than us. I could go through each person in this room and just ask, what is pressing in on you right now? You could give me an answer and you still don't know how to fix it, otherwise you would have fixed it already. We're weak. And guess what? In that, God is glorified. The reason why you haven't been crushed by whatever adversity it is that you feel up to this point is because God Himself has protected you through it. Out of the mouth of babes, He establishes strength. This is the way that he works. He, he uses small and insignificant. When people realize how small they are, that's when he works. You know why he chose Israel? Deuteronomy 7, 7 tells us, not because they were many in number, but because they were few in number. Or even you think about the, the, the shouts and the ram horns at Jericho. You've got this mighty city, right? And these impenetrable walls. And God doesn't let them just fight a straight up battle. He says, walk around, shout, and then blow some trumpets. Why? Because he wanted them to know that in the end, it's through those small, seemingly insignificant things that he would grant victory. Or for those of you who are familiar with your Bibles, remember in the story of Gideon, right? He, had, he started off with 32,000 in his army. And he's about to face the Midianites. And what does God get him down to? 300. It is the way that God works. He doesn't work through the mighty and strong and the powerful. He intentionally puts us in situations where we just have to cry out and depend on Him. Why was David, of all people, the person facing Goliath and not Saul or not a whole army of men? Because God wanted to get glory for Himself through the small and through the insignificant. And even Jesus Himself on Palm Sunday would defend the children against the Pharisees crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. And they would say to him, no, 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 they don't know what they're talking about. And Jesus would quote this passage and say, out of the mouth of babes, God establishes strength. God is always working through the seemingly insignificant. And that is why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, listen to this. For consider your calling, brothers. 
and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, listen to me. The way that God works is through the small and the insignificant. And you know what? God is getting glory. He is showcasing His majesty through your inability. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps the helpless. Every one of us in this room experience limitations of body. Our body is not what we want it to be, nor will it ever. Every one of us in this room experience out-of-control emotions. Nobody keeps those things reined in all the time. Every one of us are limited in our understanding. There's just certain things we just can't see down the road we won't be able to predict. And yet those are the opportunities that God has given us to show Himself strong. If you're here today, brother or sister in Christ especially, and you feel weak or limited, like a crying child, be assured, God is establishing His strength. He is conquering His enemies in your weakness. In the week ahead, you'll check email, you'll watch the news, you'll visit a doctor, you'll plan a budget. And I have a feeling if things hold true to course, you're not going to like what you see or hear. Be reminded, God's at work. So, the majesty of God, that's what we're talking about, being manifest. In our inability. The majesty of God is manifest in our inability. But interestingly, the text moves on. It spends the majority of the time on the remaining verses. It shows us that the majesty of God is also manifest in our authority. It almost seems paradoxical. The majesty of God being apparent or made known in our inability, and the majesty of God being made known in our authority. We have some measure of authority. That's what the text says. You see that in verses 3 through 9. I'm going to walk you through it one verse at a time. Just look at verse 3. He switches gears here. And and he has us look up. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Now, Paul, notice what he's doing. He's taking our attention to the night sky. There's no mention of the sun here. It's the night sky. He'd have us look at those millions of flaming orbs we call stars. 
He'd have us contemplate the moon that steadily makes its course across the night sky, shining down on us in peaceful ways. And He would have you remember that all of that that you see on those clear nights, I'm not talking about here in Naples or whatever neighborhood you live in, you might be able to see the moon in light of all the streetlights. I'm talking about that time that Somebody who loved you, like took you out camping and got you away from all the light and you looked up and you could see everything. Those cool, clear nights. How do you feel when staring up at all that? He's going to coach you through it and say, hey, you, you should feel really small because that huge universe that you're staring at, God took his fingers And he moved that stuff into place like kids do Legos. Now, theologically speaking, God is a spirit. He doesn't have fingers. (laughs) But again, this is poetic language. is anthropomorphism. When you give human qualities to God to help us better understand. My son and I were having this conversation. God spoke the world into existence. But what this shows is how much bigger he is than the thing that we consider to be the biggest of all. What is bigger than the cosmos? And it's like God's Lego set. If God is infinitely bigger than the cosmos, and we seem to be infinitesimally smaller than the cosmos, wow, there's a huge leap between the two. And you would almost walk away, if the, if the psalm ended there, you would almost walk away in despair and think, man, I don't mean jack squat. I'm worthless. There's a sense in which you may be. You would be. But it doesn't end. He says, when I look at your heavens, verse 3, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you were mindful of him? And the Son of Man, that you care for Him. Friends, this is where special revelation, and we'll be theological for a moment, but hang with me, it's really important. This is where special revelation is significant. Say, what's special revelation? Well, it stands in contrast to general revelation. General revelation is anything you could learn from looking at the observable universe. You look at an observable universe and you think, wow, this stuff just didn't like explode here, despite what people would naturally say. Uh, Somebody had to make it. Uh, creation, like you understand that from general revelation, but there are certain things that you can't understand apart from God in a special way speaking them to you through His Word. And guess what He does here? If all we had was general revelation, we would look at the stars and think, whoa, who are we in light of everything else going on? We must be small and insignificant and unimportant. But guess what? God's Word tells us that He actually, listen to this, is mindful of mankind and that He cares for Him. Like, You and me, as small as we are, occupy the the thinking space of God. And and not only are we on His mind, but He actually cares. Like, He's willing to, like, move into a situation and provide help, support, comfort, whatever it is we need. You don't learn that by yourself. You learn that from the Word. The Word's telling us that even though we live in this huge universe, God thinks of us in a special way, and here's the expression of that. How do you know that God is caring for you in a special way? It's based on the authority that He's given you over His world. This is mind-blowing. Look at verse 5. 
He says, what is man? And then he answers, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that even though the entire created world was made, and you may be like physically a very small part of that, you were made in a special way in which you were created only below the heavenly beings themselves. The word translated heavenly beings in your Bible is Elohim. It's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It can mean angelic beings. It can mean God Himself. Whatever it's saying, it is clear that it's the heavenly realm, and then there's mankind, and then there's everything else. You occupy a special position in creation to the degree that you were crowned. Listen to it. Think about it. You were crowned with glory and honor. Now, what does it mean when we crown somebody, right? Like, when you crown a new king or queen, you're like, you entrust them with authority. Like, they are, they are given a symbol of their authority. God Himself crowned us with a measure of glory and honor that would literally place us in charge of the entire created world. It's in the text. Not just part of the world, all the world Verse 6 clarifies, what's the extent of man's rule? He he goes on to say, you have given him dominion, domination, over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. You see the parallelism and the poetry there? Dominion over the works of your hands. Guess what? If God worked it with his hands, if he made it, you rule it. He has put all things, just in case you didn't know what God creating everything meant, it says, He put all things under His feet. So what does it mean for something to be under His feet? In the ancient Near East, the symbol par excellence that someone was dominating someone else in battle was to actually take their foot and put it on the neck of the person that they had conquered. To be under someone's feet meant to be under their subjugation, to be under their rule. Uh, You would think of it this way, like when the, the Bible talks about heaven and earth being God's footstool. It's under Him. But guess what? The text says it's your footstool. It's under you. God rules this world through not just special people, but any human being. That there is an inherent dignity here. And and this takes us straight back to what we had looked at just a little while ago in Genesis. Uh, Flip with me there, please, to Genesis chapter 1. He's recalling the way that God set things up at creation. This isn't just wishful thinking of the psalmist. This was the way that it actually went down. Go to Genesis 1, and let's look at verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, 
to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Friends, you're, you're special. And I'm going to use that phrase on purpose. You're special because God made you that way. You're special because God made you that way. Uh, you know, fancy Latin phrase that theologians like to throw around and make you sound smart? The Imago Dei. The Imago Dei. The image of God in man. That is why you are special. He stamped Himself upon you and no other created being in a special way. Now, there's a huge, huge debate. I mean, Thousands and thousands of pages have been written to try to explain what the Imago Dei actually is. And some people say that the Imago Dei is the fact that man was created man and woman. Plurality and unity. And then others will try to say it means that man has capacity for relationships. And some people try to say it's because man actually has intelligence. One theologian actually argued that the Imago Dei means that man has a body. And that God somehow has a celestial body. I'm not making this up. This is real. But what does it ultimately mean, though, that we were created in the image of God? It is not merely our capacity for a relationship or religion or right and wrong, although that's all part of it. It is primarily the fact that we rule under God. We rule. That's what he, that's what he emphasizes in the text. Not only in Genesis 1, but also in Psalm 8. He says, you're special because God is ruling this world through you. It is huge. Friends, this is not fake, but it is real. Did any of you as a child ever have that experience? Like getting on a plane, and then one of the stewardesses, or whatever they call them now, flight attendants, like gave you like a plastic set of wings. Anybody ever get those? Your kids ever get those? As if, like, the plastic set of wings is going to convince the child that they have some special place on this plane. Friend, you didn't just get a plastic set of wings. You sit in the cockpit of creation. The stuff that you do has a real effect on his world. You dominate it all. So, Justin, I don't feel like I'm dominating it all. Well, you think about the alternative. Just continue to read the text. Notice the extent of man's rule. He's going to focus in on animals. He says, you've put all things under his feet. And now he gives some specific expressions of that in verse 7. All sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field. So those are land animals. The birds of the sea and the fish of the sea. So that's the, the sky animals and the sea animals. So we've got land, sky, sea. And then there's that interesting little phrase. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. When you see this in the book of Job, it refers to the hidden currents that are underneath the ocean. And in the ancient Near Eastern mind, it expressed the unknown, the scary, the monstrous, the Leviathan, this mythical creature that existed. Whatever was made, even those scary monsters under the sea, you rule it. Land, sea, sky, it's all under you. You all rule it. Um, if anybody's ever seen that theological jewel uh, the planet of the apes. You would be reminded 
of the consequences of an evolutionary worldview in which the monkeys, or apes, excuse me, eventually take over the world. Friends, not happening. Jesus could delay his rule however many years, and whales are not taking over, apes are not taking over, doves are not taking over. We rule this planet. I know you feel like your house isn't as organized as you want it to be, but listen, no animals are running your home. And don't call your kids animals. You get the point? I I know that we don't think that we've got it all together, but the truth is, I don't want to offend anybody, but we eat them. I, I'm, I'm today, like I'm planning on eating that stuff. <laughs> it, you don't, there's no more domination than that. And that's ultimately one that he wants you to be reminded of. You own it all. It's not just the animals. It's everything. Art. Science, literature, agriculture, medicine. Think of the ways that mankind, even in his fallen state, have dominated this world for thousands of years. We're at the top of this thing. God set it up that way. And he said, you should be reminded that you are special because of this. Practically, this affects us in a few ways. When you understand your dignity as a ruler over creation, firstly, it should affect you by inviting you to enjoy the majesty of God. You should enjoy the majesty of God. Friends, the the created world is for your enjoyment and your pleasure. It is for you to actually look at, rule over, just as a king would rule over his land and his property, and for you to enjoy For those of you guys who like to hunt and fish, go for it. That's exactly what the Lord has invited you to do. For those of you who like to, and I'm not being funny here, you want to eat meat, eat it. You don't want to, it's okay. Listen, by the way, it's not just about using the planet and enjoying it, but it's also about preserving it. You're like, is he going to preach conservation? Well, let's just think logically, friends. Like, if you use it all up, (laughs) you're not being a good steward or ruler of creation. If I give my kids, like, a $5 a week allowance and they always blow it and they never turn it into more, like, that's bad rule. Okay, so if we trash the planet and we kill all the animals, like, we've got a problem. So, I mean, there's still a degree of, like, responsibility, but in the end, though, we should enjoy God's rule. We should reflect God's rule in what we do. If you want a real logical way of, at least the way I think through this, uh, Stephen Covey's uh, production versus production capacity. Um, There there are certain things that we need to produce, and there are certain ways we need to support that production. And he uses the story of the goose and the golden egg. You remember that? All right, so get the golden egg. Enjoy the golden egg. Don't rip the goose apart (laughs) and lose all your eggs. If you don't understand the nursery rhyme, talk to me afterward. I'll connect you. 
But the point is, we should be enjoying creation. Friends, you could walk out of here today and know that, hey, God created this world for me. When you find certain joy in God's created world, that is good. And by the way, friends, don't fall for the, the shoddy eschatology that teaches us one day we're going to be floating all up in heaven on clouds, playing harps. There will be a new heavens and a new earth created, and what you like about this world now that's not sinful will be enhanced in the world to come. There is, there is good for us in eternity future. We can enjoy the world in light of the majesty of God, but we not only should enjoy it, but I would say to us, friends, that we should enhance the majesty of God in this world. We should enhance it. We are required to reflect the rule of God, right? You're following me? But listen, I've alluded to it, but let me just hit it straight on. We don't rule it that well. We don't rule it that well. We've all seen good expressions of authority over this world, but we've seen some pretty bad ones. Just think about your own life. In James chapter 3, verse 7, James will say that mankind has ruled every animal, basically, on the planet, but he can't rule his own what? Do you remember? Tongue. Ever since our first parents rejected the, the rule of God to exercise their own rule. When they said, hey, we don't want to reflect the way you're doing it. We want to do this thing our own way. It messed us all up. It, it really shattered our capacity to be able to do it. We, we see remnants of God's good rule through mankind down through the millennia. But overall, we, we, we've got a major problem because we just keep injecting selfish expressions of rule and we end up dominating this planet more than leading it. We dominate our families rather than lead them. We exercise our leadership sinfully as opposed to selflessly. And that, we all know that. We all see that. And that's what James 3 is pointing at. There are certain things that aren't fixed yet. But friends, this is why I was praying from 1 Corinthians 15 today. Did you know that in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Hebrews chapter 2, The New Testament authors will take this passage and you know who they apply it to more than anyone else? Our Lord Jesus Christ. No one has dominated, ruled this planet in a way that honors God like Jesus has. I mean, when He came, He exercised perfect mastery over weather, over the spiritual realm, over physical disease. I mean, like when He walked into a place, He left it and He made it better. And he conquered mankind's greatest enemy, death itself. By dying a death, he didn't deserve to die. By dying to pay for the penalty of sin that you and I had all incurred, he satisfied that and then remedied that through being buried and then rising again to show that all who will believe in him can experience this same life, this same mastery over the world. Guess what? When you are in Christ, when you trust in him, you are given an enhanced capacity to rule this world in a way that you never had before. And that's why, friends, it's such a big deal that you and I, as believers, have our mess together. Like, we are representing God's rule. When we see our lost friends and family who are struggling because of their own sin, we're just, we sh- our hearts should be broken, and we should invite them to rely on Christ so that they could have this capacity to rule, so that the Spirit would come and give them the power needed to reflect Jesus in the right way. And yet, friends, we have access to that power now. We have that capacity because of what Christ has done. 
Not in miraculous ways, in the same way that Jesus did, but the resurrection power of Christ, see Romans chapter 6, indwells you because of His Spirit, and you can say no to those selfless expressions of rule and say yes to those selfless ones, and your home can be what it needs to be, your business can be what it needs to be, and your world can be exactly what it needs to be in Christ. The only thing that will mess that up is those times that you, in a lack of faith, reject what Christ has offered in the Spirit and pursue your own way. Friends, we have, I'm saying enhance His rule. Look, I'm not saying just like keep ruling over the world. I'm saying trust in Jesus to help you better run your own world, your own family, your own business. Christ does enhance that. I'm not promising you more money. I'm just saying that sin is the biggest problem that you have in your home. It is the biggest problem you have in your business. It is the biggest problem you have in influence with other people. And Jesus remedies sin. Christians should rule their worlds in a way that reflects Christ. That's all I'm saying. And so you trust in Him for that. And I'm not saying you're going to do it perfectly. Hey, look, listen, we still live on this planet and we still struggle with sin. One day Jesus will come and finally eliminate sin. But right now, it's not there yet. So we should enhance the majesty of God, enjoy the majesty of God. And then finally, we should extend the majesty of God. We should extend it. Friends, I want you to understand something that... For those of you who believe in Jesus, you believe in His Word, you have a responsibility to defend the dignity of God's majesty in man wherever you find Him. Some people often wonder why conservative Christians seem to be always so up in arms over right-to-life issues. Why, why are these Christians always so concerned about the unborn? It's because that life represents the image of God. A beautiful expression of it now. (laughs) The image of God. Listen to me. What's the difference between that child now and six months ago? It's the image of God. It matters to us. And we defend that. And we honor that. And we uphold that. So we not only want to enhance it in the way that we live, but we want to extend it by actually teaching others why they matter. They don't just need to look inward and navel gaze. They need to look upward and see that God has placed on them a special status. He has crowned them with glory and honor from the womb to the tomb. Just because someone is older and they can't contribute to society in the way that we think is beneficial doesn't mean that we get to say that there's something less. We defend life. We extend this imago Dei, this understanding to all individuals created in God's image. We have a high view of mankind. And those of you who share my kind of reformed presuppositions, don't have too low a view of man yet. Don't, don't take your worm theology yet. I mean, like, start off, let's start off when we're trying to explain to people what God is like. Let's start off with where man was as the king of creation, and then let's show him as the one who resisted that kingship and the rebel, and then let's show him what he can be like again through Christ. It's just a really awkward conversation if your gospel presentation starts off with, you're a sinner. It's, not, it's, it's true, but you're not rewinding the tape far enough. 
get back to the beginning, please. We were created for more. We were created to represent God, and then we rebelled against it, and guess what? Christ restores us to it. So, believers protect the sanctity of life in every area. So, what's the key to understanding me? I was going to write a children's book. That might be the title. No, it wouldn't be. (laughs) Really, what's the key? How should we be thinking of ourselves? Well, not in the way that the self-help books have told us. Not by engraving, you are special on your mirror. Not by the magic circle. Not by the, I'm not kidding, I found this on the internet, the toot your own horn worksheet. It's there. It's a hoot. What I want you to understand, friends, is that it doesn't begin with the horizontal. It begins with the vertical. You want to figure out yourself, it's not going to be prolonged studies in cultural anthropology, anthropos, the study of man. It begins with the right understanding of theology, God. And what you'll recognize is that the majestic God who rules over all, Yahweh, the one with whom we enter into personal relationship, He's shown His glory through the whole earth. I mean, like, it exceeds the highest heights as expressed in mankind's inability and authority. Anybody got any inability today? God is at work in that. Do you recognize from the text at least some inherent measure of authority over creation? God is in that. We're invited to celebrate Him. Actually, we we don't end up thinking about ourselves at all. We end up thinking about Him and the way that He's made things. And so that that leaves us with just two general, practical kind of principles that kind of sum up the entire message. The principle of restriction and the principle of rule. The principle of restriction is this. You were created, friends. Friends. You were created. You're restricted. You, you do have limitations. The text is really open and honest about that. If you're feeling insufficient and small, it's okay. Just lean into the principle. God made you that way, and He works in those things. Whatever it is you're feeling limited in today, I want you to know and understand this is an invitation for God to do His work. The principle of restriction. You are not God. You are created. But there's also the principle of rule which speaks to not only our, that we were created, but we have been crowned. You are created, you are under God, but guess what? You are above everything else. And God has given you a capacity to reflect Him well. Your, your world may feel like it's spiraling out of control and that, that you just feel so limited and so weak, but... Beware the pit of despair, friends. Hope is offered in Christ, and you actually do have the ability to run your life in a way that pleases Him. That's what we're trying to do here at church every week. We're equipping the saints, right, for the work of the ministry. Man, we've got ministry to do. We've got ministry to do in our homes. We've got ministry to do in our communities, in our families, in our workplaces. And we just need to remember, like, this isn't... a 
uh, like an uphill battle. Like, we have capacity now in Christ to reflect Him well. I'm not giving you self-esteem here. I'm giving you Savior esteem. (laughs) Think about the fact that Jesus is at work in you, and He can give you victory over those limitations that you feel. I don't know which one you need more. Maybe it's the principle of restriction, that you're not God, and you just need to lean into that, acknowledge that. Maybe it's the principle of rule, that you actually have a capacity in Christ to do exactly what He's called you to do. But whatever it is, through our limitations, through our authority, let us glorify our God, His excellent name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, give us an appropriate amount of self-esteem only insofar as we look to You. That's the problem. May we not begin with ourselves. May we begin with You and what You have done for us, the way that You have made us. Lord, overwhelm us with Your majesty today. Lord, may we walk out of this place encouraged at your rule expressed through us and even the limitations imposed upon us. Lord, if there's anyone here Lord, who is yet to, to Lord, trust in Christ and receive this renewed capacity to rule the, their world in a way that reflects your honor and glory, I pray that you work in their heart that, that you would Lord, convict them of their sin, that you would convert them so that they would trust in you even today sweet conversation to have today. And for those who have already trusted, Lord, encourage them on their way out with the truth of this text. Honor yourself in our singing now, our giving, our fellowship to come. In Jesus' name.